0: Welcome to episode 364 of the Reformed Brotherhood.
1: I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony. And we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Oh, the sky comes down for you,
0: there's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, brother. Hey brother, we're just at the start of our conversation, but we're we talking about the end times, the end of all things. Yes. It's that series of eschatology. And we've just started. So if somebody's thinking, is this a great time to jump into the Reformed Brotherhood? One, it's never a bad time to jump <laughs> into the Reformed Brotherhood, unless it's episode one. Yeah. In which case she'll say, What was going on then? And we have the same question. But two, it just started. So you can catch up. There's just one episode where we spoke about eschatology last week, but we're going to be talking about what it means when the Bible refers to the resurrection of the just and the unjust. So that's coming. It sounds heavy and it is, but let's keep it light before we get into some of that heaviness. Affirming and denying. And I figured let's start with denials this time. Ooh. So what are you denying against on this, the 364th episode of the TRB?
1: So, you know, I think. Uh, we would be remiss not to at least acknowledge the things that are going on in Israel and in uh, Gaza right now. Um, This is October 15th of 2023 that we're recording this. And this is day three or four or five, maybe of a pretty, uh, sudden and serious, uh, war that has just sort of sprung up almost seemingly overnight, actually literally overnight. Uh, so I'm not denying that obviously we're denying that that's just like a standing denial, like war and murder and, and evil. We're just denying that, but there's been a whole host of like articles that have dropped you know like on gospel coalition and people's personal blogs and all sorts of different stuff about what do Christians how should Christians think about Israel what do we need to know about the war And I came across an article or it was a podcast episode or a clip from a podcast episode or maybe a YouTube episode or all of the above from Wretched Radio, which is uh, hosted by Todd Friel. He calls himself Todd Freakishly Tall Friel. And by and large, he's a a MacArthur-ish, you know, kind of a leaky dispensationalist kind of guy. Um, So we we would obviously have some disagreements with him. But by and large, he's uh, one of the good guys. Like he... He's a sharp thinker. He prioritizes the gospel. Um, I think he gets some things wrong in terms of Lordship salvation, but um, we all get things wrong. Um, and m- most people probably don't realize, but like Todd Friel was pretty instrumental in my own journey uh, coming to a more robust reformed theology. Um, he used to broadcast out of Minneapolis when I was there. He was a local radio host. And so his, his show really helped me to see that Christians can think seriously about the faith, that it doesn't just have to be an emotive, feelings-based thing, that there's an intellectual, rational component to it too. And so I say this to preface what I'm about to say because I have a a lot of respect for Todd Friel. All of that said, he posted a clip from Wretched TV, so I think this must have been a YouTube video, and the the title of the clip on YouTube was What Christians Need to Know About Israel-Hamas War. And it's a lot of the normal stuff about prioritizing the gospel, sort of a summary of, you know, what has happened in in uh, the Middle East. And then he goes into this long discussion about the different views of Israel within the church. And he positions it basically as like, well, there's there's dispensationalists. He doesn't necessarily call it dispensationalists. I mean, he, he does, but he doesn't. And there's dispensationalists. And then there's, here we go, supersessionists. So I'm I'm denying this article and mostly I'm denying just the idea that dispensationalists just can't seem to get past that somehow uh reformed covenant theology is replacement theology. And so he does a he does a good job explaining um you know the different possible perspectives but he loses it when he starts to talk about what supersessionism is. And so he he defines it as most dispensationalists do, basically saying that uh, supersessionists would say that there's no special, uh, there's no special relationship between God and Israel, and that the church has now taken over or superseded that relationship. The problem with this, there's a cup, there's a number of problems. The problem with this is that that's not at all what Reformed theology believes, right? So Reformed theology would say that true Israel is synonymous with the church, but not in a way where the church has replaced true Israel, but that the the church was always true Israel, and true Israel was always the church, that the church started in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, and then it progressed through the rest of the, the history of God's creation and will continue into the end times. So it's not so much that the church has Replaced Israel, it's that the church is the ongoing expression of God's people, uh, where once God's people were more or less restricted to a, a subset of a geo-ethnic political kingdom, and now it is a it is a non geo non geo-ethnic political group. We're not we're not a subset of that anymore. We're now a transnational group. Uh, the other thing that I just think to point out about this I don't have the quote directly in front of me but he he repeatedly refers to God's promises to ethnic national Israel right and so I actually think that reveals one of the weaknesses of dispensationalism whether it's John MacArthur's flavor of dispensationalism or whether it's you know more classical flavors of dispensationalism is that they prioritize and overemphasize the physicalness of Israel Israel was always a spiritual reality. It's just a matter of where Israel, true Israel, existed. Was it within a particular nation under the old covenant? Yes. Is it now no longer under a particular nation under the new covenant? Yes. But it was not. It's not the case that there was this time period where God's special relationship was tied up in a biological, physical lineage. It was always the case, and this is what Paul says in Romans. It was always the case that Israel was about those who had circumcised hearts, and so there's a couple articles. There's a podcast called the the um, called the Prodcast, P-R-O-D-Cast. Um, I'm not a big fan of the podcast in general, but he did an article or a, an episode kind of on this. And he actually goes through some of the evidence that shows that spiritual Israel was always the point. Um, and then Josh Summer over on the Baptist Podcast did an episode that's sort of related to this, but really focusing on how the, the temporal kingdoms of Israel, uh, you know, the Israeli people, the modern Israeli people, and the modern Palestinian people, that when we put too much emphasis on that, then we actually are not thinking uh, spiritually. And he, he, it's just a good episode. So go check those out. But I just think... I, I get really sick of hearing about how I'm a replacement theologian when that's just not at all, not at all what I believe. So I don't know, this isn't a new denial. It's just sort of a new form of a, of a very old denial and reformed thought. I guess we've been being called supersessionists and anti-Semites and, and all those kinds of things since the very beginning of reformed theology. And it just isn't the case.
0: Anytime, especially there's conflict in that part of the world, We're drawn back to try to understand as Christians how we relate to Israel as a nation, what that means. I think here, what we can agree upon, no matter who you are, is that there is a great tragedy of loss of life in this situation that is really of an epic proportion. And maybe our first response, while the theology is helpful and it is important for us to sift through, is this idea of trying to understand that all of man is depraved, and here we see it in these really odious colors. It really is absolutely awful. And I think more than just saying the kind of quintessential cliche things like, oh, our hearts go out and our prayers are with them, we really ought to have our hearts with all the people who are suffering in this situation. And we really ought to be praying that God would reveal himself, provide peace. It is tragic. It is really... Awful. There are no words, really. And so I, I, we're not qualified to speak into this. The situation is so complicated and so complex. And really, I, I was speaking with my father this week. We actually uh, prayed over this situation. And all I could say, I just kept thinking as I was reading articles, as I was trying to put myself in the place of this kind of suffering, all I came to was, Lord, have mercy and Lord, come quickly. And that, that's really what we need. We need Jesus. And apart from him, there's no hope for any of us. Yeah, And what we see is this kind of situation play out time and time again. I'm so thankful that the scripture tells us again, people hear me say this all the time, I'll never tire it. People, The, the Bible tells us the truth about reality. The Bible tells us all of what it means to be fallen. Yeah. And we ought not to be surprised by this, but doesn't mean that we ought not to have compassion and empathy to have our hearts wretched with any kind of suffering, any kind of grotesque violence perpetrated against any kind of group of people for the sake of them just being a certain type of people. And so we really ought to come back to the place where we cry out to our father and say, Lord, would you have mercy on us? And that's what
1: we need. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't want to add to that. So why don't we move on to your denial?
0: Uh, Mine is not necessarily of a dissimilar Nature, I think so many of my denials come from a place where I'm denying myself my own proclivities to kind of move off center. And so, people, you'll all reasonable people, you judge for yourselves yourselves whether or not this is also your condition. But I was just thinking again how I tend to domesticate the gospel, domesticate like God is a recklessly spendthrift with His love and compassion, His grace and His mercy. So I domesticate it; I turn it into an animal in some ways that I want to have in comfort. And God is wild and he's uncontained. He's unchidered. And I recently was just reminded of this quote by this American Episcopalian priest named, uh, he's an author as well, Robert Farrar Capon. And this is what he says. I came back to this because it, it shot up in some reading that I was doing. And then it just floored me. And I thought, man alive, have I made sometimes... Like the gospel in the evangelical representation of that gospel by way of the Reformation itself, something that is like so tame and chill. Yeah. And it's not. So here's the quote. He's actually reflecting on why Martin Luther refused to endorse forced celibacy on priests. So this comes from a weird place, but hang with me for just a second. Here's what Capon writes. He writes, The Reformation was a time when people went blind, staggering drunk because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism, a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old, 200-proof grace, <laughs> a bottle after bottle a pure distillate of Scripture that would convince anyone that God saves us single-handed, end quote. And I, I think that this, the language he uses, the the analogical language here is not, I don't think it's inflammatory. It might not be inflammatory enough. Like if, if Luther read that quote, he'd be like, he didn't go far enough. yeah I just love though, this idea of being so overwhelmed, so under the influence of this pure distillate of grace, that that's not actually the normal position that I have. This is the great joy of their affirmation. It came against all this like performing, all this having to somehow do something for God to make yourself righteous or appeasing before him. And so I'm just denying against that in my own life, at least, I do not live like this quote, like basically puts forward or promulgates, And I came across it again and it just floored me as if I read it for the first time. But I love this whole cellar full of 1500 year old, 200 proof grace. What a great way to talk about like the impact that God's grace should have on us. Like you sip of it And it just messes you up. And maybe that's the whole point. And I'm not messed up enough. I should be recovering more from what it means to have been saved because you are just totally overwhelmed by this pure distillate of scripture, which says God does it all. And that gift is so wild, so recklessly spendthrift, so overwhelming that you just kind of stagger away from it. And your whole life is just staggering from one thing to the next under the influence being filled by the spirit, because that's really what happens when God arrests and saves his people.
1: Yeah. 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 So you ever hear one of those paragraphs where like, if I could just write one paragraph like that in my entire life, <laughs> yes, that, that's like exactly. one of those paragraphs. And I'm sure there are tons of people that are like, Oh, Jesse said, God is reckless. We better stop listening to the podcast. There's a place for, um, what am I trying to say? There's a place for exaggerated language to make a
0: point. Yeah, hyperbolic language is
1: appropriate. Yeah, hyperbolic language is appropriate. And the beauty of of God, I guess, is that when we say something true about God, we can never be hyperbolic enough, right? Because everything that God is, he is to the infinite perfection. And I think when we talk about God's love and his grace— when we feel like we've got a grip on it, it just absolutely means we don't have a grip on it. Because how could we have a grip on on an infinite, an infinitely perfect, gracious disposition towards sinners who don't deserve it? Like there's no, right. there's no rationality to that. There's no logic to that. That's not to say that God is illogical or chaotic. It's to say that that doesn't fit any framework that we understand. So I, I think that's great. I think that's a great quote. I'll have to I'll have to uh, think about it a little bit more and, and ponder it a little bit more, but it's definitely a good one.
0: Yeah. It's one of those quotes that draws you in and it draws you in with that hyperbole to try to get a sense for just how grand the thing is that he's talking about. And that's what I like about yeah. it because again, we just tame it too much. We measure it down. We have... They, they, you know there's often this quote of like one generation is shocked by something, the next generation takes it for granted, the the further generation, the subsequent one then eradicates it altogether. It becomes so normative as to mean nothing. Yeah. And sometimes I think that's the place where we find ourselves. Every generation has to come back to the center of really the shocking nature of, you know, it's like Jesus speaking with a woman at the well. If the disciples knew who she was, they would have fallen into the well, which is pure shock. Like, this is who God is. He always comes after the sinner. I do want our listeners to hear me. You'll notice that I always paired this idea of God being reckless with his, as an adjective of recklessly spendthrift. That's how it is. Like the prodigal son, that whole story, that's not good parenting. You're never gonna find that in a parenting book. Yeah. Because it's gonna be some that idea of like, we had to process the fact that the child disobeyed and really committed treason against the parent, wished they were dead. And here the father just comes running. Yeah. And because we're so used to that story, uh, let me say this because I'm so used to that story. I find it to be like, well, of course that's what God does. Yeah, God is not under no compulsion to do this, to behave this kind of way. In fact, he is under, I would say, the greater compulsion to behave with like complete justice with demands that there's punishment for anything that comes against him when there is treason ought to be meted out in judgment. So the fact that Jesus comes, he lives obediently, there's active obedience, and there's his passive obedience, and that all of this means that I not only get absolved, but I get credited all righteousness. This like, We will spend eternity, I presume, worshiping God just for that alone, yeah. let alone any other of his characteristics, which are worthy, like you said, to the infinite degree of our bowing down before him and acclaiming him as complete perfection. And so here I just find when it comes to God's grace, his mercies being new every day, I mean, we, can't, we just can't even conceive of this. Yeah. What we do conceive though often is some kind of like neutered version of them. And I love that this quote in somewhat of a shocking way pushes against that. And I love this idea of just staggering underneath the Holy Spirit, the weight of being changed in such a dramatic way. It's not being filled with wine to the point of drunkenness. It's instead, as Paul commands us, that we have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so doing, we're certainly under the influence of something greater, far greater than we could possibly comprehend. Do we know this power in our lives? And so I, I find that all embedded in this quote. So we can make this the episode, maybe sometime we will. But for now, I'm just denying against my own Lack of staggering, I guess. Yeah. Repeat the weight of this. Coming back to the center of what it means that God's grace is recklessly spendthrift. Yeah. You can at me if you want about that. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to, I'm fine with that. You can at me all day long.
1: No, you but, can't, but though, you because you don't me. have social media.
0: Yeah, that's true. So, well, here's something Paul and I have in common. If you at me, you're basically at the Apostle Paul as well. So. <laughs> Uh, That's I'm just saying.
1: All right. So what are you affirming with? So I'll keep this somewhat brief because I think we're going to be hearing more about it in the next uh, month or so. So I'm affirming. I know that I've affirmed individual volumes in this series. I don't know that I've affirmed the series as a whole, but I'm affirming the uh, Zondervan academic has a series, the new studies in dogmatics so it's anticipated to be a 15-volume constructive theology. Um, The reason I'm bringing this up is because the the new one is coming out. Uh, I feel like maybe it's the end of this week, or maybe it was the end of last week, uh, but soon, and it's a a volume on Christology by Daniel Trier, who's from Wheaton College. So I I have a copy on the way. I'm super excited to read it. Um, Zondervan has been gracious enough to provide me with a copy so I can go through it and make recommendations. Um, but you know, there's, there hasn't been anything that's come out in these, uh, volumes that hasn't been just stellar. I mean, they've been good. I mean, it's, it's, you know, Fred Sanders, Michael Horton, Scott Swain, uh, Michael Allen, just, just really good stuff. The volume on sanctification was amazing that the, the, um, the Holy Spirit one, I think it was Christopher Holmes was really good. So it's a good series. Um, it's not all Capital R Reformed scholars, obviously Fred Sanders is a Methodist. Um, you know, Daniel Trier teaches at Wheaton; that's where he took his PhD. So he's a more of a broad evangelical, but they do all fit sort of within the the more reformed academic mindset. So even even Fred Sanders, I think probably would would draw on people like Calvin, and um, you know he goes back to Augustine and to Aquinas, but within that sort of Augustinian trajectory, even though he himself in soteriology is not actually an Augustinian. So it it still falls within that kind of Augustinian tradition. And even just the short, brief um, snippets that I've read of Trier's volume, the little ones you get in a preview and stuff, it's just going to be good. So you'll hear more about the book once I have it and have a chance to uh, take a look at it and start reading it. But if you are looking for a challenge, these are not easy volumes. Um, they're, they're, They're technical... Constructive theology, but if you're looking for a challenge and you want to dig into a particular topic, um, it these this really is I think one of the best multi-volume. It's kind of like multi-volume monograph series that there is, although. Um, Horton's is two volumes in itself, but check it out. It's the New Studies in Dogmatics, uh, and it's uh, published by Zondervan. I think right now there's the Holy Spirit is out. Um, there's one on the Trinity. Uh, there's one on Christology that's forthcoming. Uh, Michael Horton has Justification. Sanctification is out. Uh, so check it out. They're they're good. They're reliable. Um, I said as I said, they're they're not easy, but they are definitely worth the heavy lift if you're looking for a challenge and you're wanting to get an is some good technical theology. There's one thing you can always count on with us is that
0: you're going to occasionally get a recommendation for some good technical resources.
1: It's true. I mean, they're readable. Horton's, um, you know, if you were... If you were going to ask me which one I enjoyed the most, I would say it was Fred Sanders. If you were going to tell, ask me which one is the most valuable theologically, it's at least so far it's easily going to be Horton's multi-volume. So, Volume One of Horton's Justification is more or less a history of how justification developed, and what was most valuable about it is this is kind of something that I think most Reformed people have an intuition about, but we don't necessarily have the dot like we don't have the receipts for it. Horton brings the receipts and basically shows that the the medieval distortion of uh, justification was actually a relatively novel thing when the Reformation came around. We have kind of this picture in our mind uh, at times, and and the Roman Catholic Church certainly doesn't help us to dispel this that, like, the Roman Catholic Church basically believed this more or less uh, continuously from the apostles. And then the Protestants go, well, that was maybe like maybe after Augustine is when this took place. Really, we're talking like 100 or 200 years prior to the Reformation is when this medieval distortion of justification really, really took off. There's antecedents and things, seeds earlier on in the tradition, but where it really became formalized was in the the late 12th, maybe late 13th centuries where we really start to see it become dogma. And Horton brings that, to the forefront pretty quick. And then the second volume is a constructive theology and looks at a lot more modern issues in, in justification. So that's the most valuable. If you're looking for one that just feels like a good, uh, like a good cup of tea, the, the Trinity one is just really, really a, a good warm volume. Of course it is. Right. Yeah. What would we expect from those guys? It's true. It's true. So check it out. New studies and dogmatics. You'll hear more about the Christology volume as I get into it and start to take some notes and, and read it and process a little bit in the coming weeks.
0: I love it. See, again, it's always good to have a quality book affirmation, both of like a technical nature And more, I hate to say it this way, but just for a sake of comparison, like devotional nature, not that one is not the other, that mutually exclusive, of course, but we have a long said in our conversations, always good to read above your head a little bit. That's true. And that just forces us, one, into relying on the Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth by way of practical exercise, but two, to expose us to new things theologically or deeper parts of our theology that we do have to wrestle with. It's good to wrestle. Got to wrestle with some ideas now and again. So... I'm totally down with that. I saw that online and I did think at the back of my mind, you're going to at some point bring this up. Oh,
1: yeah. Yeah, I'm excited. I, I'm <laughs> I'm glad that Zondervan still thinks highly enough of me to send me a copy when I ask for it because these there volumes are... Although they're not the most expensive uh, monographs you're going to buy, they're certainly not uh, They're not like a crossway trade paperback kind of $15 book. They're a bit more expensive than that. But they're worth you- the heavily. They're also available, the ones that are published, they're also available on Logos Bible Software. So if you're wanting an electronic yes, I version, say. Uh, I don't know when the Christology will want to come out. Usually there's a little bit of a lag, but um, the ones that are published so far are all available on Logos as well. Would you say
0: these volumes are like chef's kiss?
1: Yeah, I mean, I can't say that about the Christology one because I haven't read it yet, but they're they're good. I, I haven't found anything. Actually, the Sanctification volume was pretty instrumental in some of my, my... They're not necessarily new trajectories, but in refining some of my thought on Sanctification as truly monergistic. So y- if you read these volumes, you're going to hear a lot of what Jesse and I have talked about on the show because they've influenced me quite a bit in the last five, six years since for they sure. started coming out. Yeah, for sure. I love it. That's solid.
0: That's just... That's like meat and potatoes affirmation stopper.
1: It is. It is. What about you? What are you affirming today, Jesse?
0: You already inadvertently helped me to introduce my affirmation. So this is, uh, again, not unrelated to yours. The English language, like so many other languages, is so rich, so deep, so lovely, so wonderful. It's an adventure, an expression. And I'm affirming with the fact that uh, every so often... Merriam Webster's, which is a common English dictionary, adds new words. They just added 690 new words. And I'm basically to start, we're just affirming with you should go out and try to look at what words are being added to dictionaries if you're an English speaker, because it's so fun. It's so delightful. It's really lovely. But you'll also get a sense for what's happening in the culture in the zeitgeist by looking at that. Maria Webster just added 690 new words f- just in September alone. You can go, I, I'm encouraging you to go out and search out that article. One of those words is something I just used that you picked up on right away. Chef's kiss. Yes. Just made it in, officially, into the dictionary. Here's some other ones. I oh, thought it'd be fun. Let me give you some words. Tony, you seem to know what the young people are saying. So <laughs> let me start with, like, here's some slang and informal words. Uh, Riz was added. Do you know what the Riz is?
1: Oh, I, I did. I heard Ben Shapiro talking about it. <laughs> I don't remember.
0: Yes. You you got it. So it's part of slang. It means like romantic appeal or charm. It's sharp for charisma. Oh, right, right,
1: right, right. Yes. I do remember that. So
0: doggo is in. We know what doggo mm-hmm. means that officially made it in padawan nice made it into the Mirror webster dictionary it's just like a young person especially when regarded as naive or inexperienced and if you go out the fun is you can see all of these different like, categories in which they've added words chef's kiss as i already mentioned finally made its way in i guess finally i'm like i'm using that but i feel like more justified in being able to use certain words because they've like officially been added to the dictionary nerf is in there doesn't mean what you think it does. I'll leave that for you to go and take a look at yourself. Chefy as an adjective has made it chefy. Miriam Webster Dictionary, smash burger, it's all there now. Finally, if you've been thinking about one of my favorite words though that I've never heard of before, I'm going to ask you what you think this might mean. It's in sports and exercise, and the word is k fabe, K-A-Y-F-A-B-E. fabe, fabe. It's a noun. Any idea? just guess cuz I'm guessing like I would be so surprised if you were like I use this at work all the time. But it's sports and exercise K-Fabe. Kayfabe. Any idea or if you had to guess what that meant? Uh, this is more fun. What's that game where you you get a word from the dictionary Balderdash? and then you make up
1: Yes. I don't know. Maybe K-Fabe is a more. is a synonym for the game Balderdash. I have no idea. I can't even I can't even think of something.
0: Okay, so here's what it is. It's the tacit agreement between professional wrestlers and their fans to pretend that overtly staged wrestling event stories, characters, etc., are genuine. <laughs> There's a word for that. There is. And it just got added to the Merriam Webster dictionary. It's called kayfabe. That's
1: noun. let's put this somewhat in the, what a time to be alive. And also somewhat in the, what a time to be alive in the negative sense yeah. kind of thing. That's, Sometimes the words that make their way in the dictionary are a little bit depressing, i got to say. It is. I agree with you, and that's
0: why it's a joy to read these lists because you're going to get a sense for like what people obviously are talking about, how they're using these words. One of the alternate definitions, actually, of this word is it's a tacit agreement to behave as if something is real, sincere, genuine, when it's not. Huh. That's a really great use of this word. Yeah. And the fact that it derives from professional wrestling, I think is great. Like, you know, obviously they're cave all over the place when they're hitting each other with like folding chairs. So to be able to use this, I think actually you and I could find lots of usage for this when we use it as a way of saying that we are agreeing that something is real or sincere when we know it's not. So it's amazing. So go check out Merriam Webster's list. They're always publishing what they're adding, and it's like a commentary on culture for sure. And there's all kinds of different subgenres of the words, there's all kinds of things in here that are super interesting. Uh, girl boss was added under business. Yeah. that I always like to see what's being added under slang and informal. And I didn't know that like I guess people use doggo a lot. You guys use doggo. We use doggo a lot. Do you really? Okay. So and pupper.
1: It's slang for dog. There's no it's yeah, <laughs> not even slang. It's just a just a <laughs> mutilation of the word. Comes from yeah, a meme. It's,
0: yes. Yes. Yeah. What about like NGL as abbreviation?
1: NGL. You know is? I do not know that.
0: Not gonna lie.
1: Oh, it's because I never. Not gonna lie. lie.
0: Yeah, exactly. That <laughs> this is like you know already. It's like you know, cut to the New Testament. Let your SBS. Yeah, exactly. know. So anyway, so speaking of words and the word, actually, let me insert one quick thing before we get to this. The fact that you all are listening to us talk is in some ways a miracle, both because it happens every week, God is good to us to allow us to have this conversation, and two because brothers and sisters make sure. That all of the costs associated with the podcast, its ability to come into your ears and first into the whatever app you choose is totally free to you. And so if people are thinking, you know what, I've been blessed by hearing Tony and Jesse talk, not because they're great conversationalists or great orders, but because God is moving in the midst of the things we're talking about because we're trying to root ourselves in the things of God. Then, if you're thinking, you know, I'd like to support that to make sure that there are no paywalls, there are no weird advertisements, there are no breaks in the conversation, then I would direct you to patreon.com backslash Reform Brotherhood. Patreon is a site where you can support the things that are of interest and value to you in a very grassroots kind of way. And we have all kinds of brothers and sisters who give small gifts to make sure that all the costs are covered. That's always free. Then, again, as you heard me say before... They just tear down the Jericho paywalls and make sure that there's not going to be anything blocked to you. This is all the content, the full content, everything available to you. And I just want to thank brother Christopher who joined this week through Patreon to make sure that this continues to be free of charge to everybody. We're so grateful. This takes a burden off of us to make sure that it sounds good. The equipment is present and ready and that when you turn it on in your car or while you're working out or while you're vacuuming, that's going to sound good and that you're going to be able to continue to hear it. So thank you, Brother Christopher. We're thankful for everybody that's part of the Reformed Brotherhood because it is a family. It is a team. We do this all together. So let's then get into the thing that we're all here to do. Let's talk about... Eschatology, and we're talking about last week. We talked about the intermediate state. I thought that was like a fantastic conversation. Would you say it was like the definitive conversation
1: on the intermediate state? Definitely, definitely was the definitive okay, conversation. Right. No one, no one ever needs to have conversations about the in, in, uh, in. I can't even say the word. The intermediate state ever again because we we closed the conversation on that. Even though we didn't even finish what we were going to talk about, we still had stuff to talk about. But you don't need to talk about that stuff anymore. Yeah, I'm with you. I
0: mean, we're not necessarily giving you like a cease and desist order. You can have your own conversations. Uh, but obviously, like it's going to be in the realm of what we talked about. So we're moving on in some ways, only because we must move on. Speaking about this idea then of the resurrection of the just and the unjust. And to start, I just want to pull us into the scriptures, which is always the best place to begin, where this reference is made at least explicitly. And if you want to follow along, if you're not in a car or doing something that would distract you, Go take your Bible, go take your favorite Bible app and go to Acts 24. You can join me in verse 10, and I'm just going to drop us, click, drag, and drop us immediately into in a whole context without getting into it. But Paul is standing before Governor Felix, and the governor has finally given him the nod to speak. And we find this starting in verse 20, verse 20, verse 10, so you can hear the language beginning there when the governor nodded for him to speak paul responded knowing that for many years you have been judged to this nation i cheerfully make my defense since you cannot take note since you can take note rather of the fact that no more than 12 days ago i went up to jerusalem to worship neither in the temple nor in the synagogues nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on discussion with anyone or causing a riot nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me but this i admit to you That according to the way, which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked, or in other translations, both the righteous and the unrighteous. There we go. That's our context.
1: Where shall we begin? We shall. So, as we mentioned last week, you know the intermediate state. We we positioned it as obviously it's an intermediate state between this life and the resurrection, and you know we we didn't get into a lot of details about what the intermediate state looks like for those who are with Christ and those who are apart from Christ. And part of that is because um, the intermediate state is in very in a very real sense it's a a preview of the final state. Right, so there's not a there's not a um, a significant I shouldn't say significant. There isn't a drastic difference between what those who are with Christ now in in the intermediate state are experiencing and what they will experience in the resurrection. There's obviously a difference, and it's a significant difference because the resurrection of the body is in view. But it, it's not as though um, those who are in in God's presence now somehow are only getting like. Fifty percent of God's benefits, right? right? They're getting they're getting everything that God has for them, uh, in in proportion to their experience. So the 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 final state, the resurrection, right? We we all as Orthodox Christians, we all affirm that there's a resurrection of the body. We can't um, we can't ignore. That there are some who would consider themselves Christians or who might claim the the title of Christian who would deny that the there is a resurrection of the body at the end at the end of time at the end of days, um, but as Orthodox Christians we would all affirm that not only are those who are going to be with Jesus in glory uh, that they will be raised and that their bodies will be restored, but we also affirm and this is not a comfortable teaching. This is something that all of us should should approach with a little bit of trepidation. But we would also affirm that the the bodies of those who are apart from Christ are also raised. Now, the difference is not that the bodies are raised. The difference is what they're raised to. So I want to read, last week we read part of chapter 32 of the Westminster Confession. I want to read the remainder, uh, or or maybe I read this, I don't remember, but I want to read section two and three. So section two reads, at the last day, such as are found alive shall not die, but be changed, and all the dead shall be raised up with the selfsame bodies, and none other, although with different qualities, which shall be united again to their soul forever. So just put a pin in that for a second. All, all of this is saying is that the people who are still alive um, which will be an uh, almost an infinitesimally small percentage of of people who have ever lived the the number of people who are alive when christ returns it's not as though they're going to die and then be raised. Now, I actually think it might be appropriate to say they experience something like death when Christ comes back. That's something we could talk about on a different episode. But th- there, there's a changing in their body and a changing in the the relationship between their bodies and souls that is is similar to what we ex- what we will experience when we die and when we are raised. Um, now, exactly what that looks like, I don't know. But but there's a there's a changing. And that changing probably is not entirely dissimilar to the process of death, but it's not death. That's important. And then it says, and the dead shall be raised up all the dead. So we're not talking about just those who are Christians. We're not talking about just those who had faith in Christ during life. We're talking about everybody, all of the people who ever lived, their bodies shall be raised the same bodies that they had, not a new body, the same body that they had, although the, the bodies will be changed. And these bodies whether it's of the just or the unjust, will be united to their souls forever. So this this is the final state, right? This this rallies against or rails against theologies that are overly Platonistic. And what I mean by that is is this idea that like the final state of man is this disembodied state where we're sitting on clouds playing cloud harps, right? That's not that's not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity ends the end story, the end of the story is saints in bodies, embodied saints worshiping Jesus around his throne forever for all time. Right. And embodied sinners, those who are not redeemed by Christ, suffering the torment that they've they've earned in their bodies for all time. And so that leads to to section three here. It says the bodies of the unjust shall be by the power of Christ raised to dishonor the bodies of the just by his spirit unto honor and be made conformable to his own glorious body. Now this might be a conversation that has to stretch into a different conversation, or maybe we do a separate episode on it. I find it really interesting that our tradition makes a distinction that the bodies of the unjust are raised by the power of Christ and that the bodies of the just are raised by his spirit. I think that's an interesting discussion. I'd really be interested to look and figure out why it is that this difference is made. But all of that to say is that although the resurrection happens universally for all people, the destination of that or the purpose and the the terminus of that resurrection, the end point of that resurrection is different, right? So for those who are apart from Christ, they're not raised to a glorious existence. They're not raised to a, a, a pleasurable, enjoyable existence. They're raised to dishonor. They're raised to torment. They're raised to what it means to be eternally separated from their source of joy and comfort, right? That's what God That's what God is to us. He's a source of joy and comfort among many other things, obviously. But to be separated from that for all eternity, that's what it awaits those who have chosen to be separated from him in this life. And then for those who are uh, in Christ, they're raised to honor and they're made conformable to Christ's glorious body. So that tells us something about the, the a physical arrangement. It tells us something about the, experience that we will have in the resurrection is that whatever it looks like, it's conformable to what Christ's body is. And I think that's that's really the jumping off point for this conversation is is that reality. Everyone's raised. Those who are apart from Christ are raised to dishonor and everything that comes with that. Those who are with Christ or are in Christ, they're raised to honor and they're made conformable to Jesus Christ. That That's really the core of everything we believe about the, the eternal state of man in the, in the resurrection.
0: And if you trust Paul, then you have to end up in this place because as we just read, he almost expresses this doctrinal truth as like a sideways or throwaway line in his moment of defending what it means to be part of the way he makes sure that you understand that both the just and the unjust will be raised. So to your point, when I read that distinction, which I think the divine's made with good clarity and purpose between being raised by Christ, being raised by the Spirit, that to me, I'm always thinking about this in terms of payment, and that the Spirit always brings life. That That is like the Spirit's jam. like He can and He will bring life. The question, though, is... Who is going to pay for the full cost of sin? And so while even now, temporarily, we bear in our bodies some cost of that sin, that when we are raised by Christ, that means we are covered by Christ's payment. We're raised by the Spirit, Christ's payment may be totally uh, separate from us. And so in that way, what we have then is those who are unjust bearing in their bodies the full cost of sin, like the full undulterated, unvarnished, unfiltered cost of sin. It must be born somewhere. Either Christ bears it or we bear it finally in its terminal state. And so that separation between understanding how we are raised, so to speak, is to emphasize that distinction in the price that must be paid. Either it has been paid for you and you accept, as it were, in the quotation marks, that price being born for you, and you lean into that, or you do not And so while everybody is raised, and Paul himself makes no bones about that, he says, this is certain. He's saying to Felix, listen, if you want to understand something like the quintessential first principle doctrinal beliefs of this thing that everybody calls, quote unquote, the way, here is one of those things. The resurrection is for real, totally legit. And that all, both the just and the unjust, there's no annihilationism here that even those who would say are outside the family of God will in fact still be raised. There is no subqualification. There's no JV team here. There's no group that gets away, which is kind of saying, well, you're not part of the group, so therefore you are somehow opting out. All will be raised. The price for sin will in fact be paid. And what we desire greatly is for God to come and rescue us yeah. from that great cost. But for those that have not been rescued from that cost, they will suffer underneath that price for all of eternity in bodily form. They will bear in their resurrected bodies, which in fact, they will be resurrected. So I think that you're right. Like there's sometimes this sense of like resurrection is just for the Christians. Like everybody else is just like someone left out. I don't know how that works, but like I've never actually conceived of this idea of like that not all people will be resurrected. There is this really like true sense in which actually sense is not the right word. Cause that somehow implies right. like, it's not the actuality of things. The wicked are going to rise. Right. Like in the very terms and names that, that they use when they were in this earth, they'll be raised under those same terms. Yeah. And it, this, the, if it's true of Christians, it will also be true of everyone else. And you don't have to take my word for it. Again, you can just like at the apostle Paul. Yeah. Like that's, that is not, by the way, I don't think that is a dude you want on Twitter. Like he <laughs> will set you on fire on Twitter, but like, this is the bottom line. It's just a stark reality. And so however much we dislike it or want to come against it or bristle against the terms of it, it doesn't matter. Paul's saying with everybody is going to rise. It's either to eternal torment or to eternal joy being in the presence of God. It depends on how the price has been paid.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think the other thing we really need to sort of emphasize about this part of what we're talking about in eschatology there's in in a certain sense this is intimately or inexorably tied up with what we're going to talk about next week so this is this is just how systematic theology works right we can't talk about one thing without also talking about other things this resurrection is is immediately tied up with the concept of judgment too i think sometimes we think of um we think of judgment in terms of like the last judgment, we think of it as this uh, this event that happens, and then it it's over. And what I what I want to try to maybe emphasize a little bit is judgment is actually an ongoing thing, right? So right. here's what um, question eighty nine of the Westminster Larger Catechism says: "Is what shall the what shall be done to the wicked at the day of judgment?" At the day of judgment, the wicked shall be set on Christ's left hand, and upon clear evidence and full conviction of their own consciences, shall consciences, yeah, shall be shall have the fearful but just sentence of condemnation pronounced against them. J- just let that sit for a second, right? So the the wicked are raised; those who are apart from Christ will be raised to new life, but it's not a life of pleasure. It's not a life of joy. It's not a life of restoration. Right. Their their consciences are not going to reject this proposition, right? Th- this is one of those things that I think sometimes in our zeal to try to, um, I don't know, to try to justify God, we sort of like um, we act as though part of why pun- eternal punishment is eternal is because there's this ongoing sin of rebellion against God. Now there's a, there's obviously a certain sense in which that's true because the person who is apart from Christ. Uh, cannot but sin, right? there's there's an ongoing sin in first and foremost in rejecting Christ. that's that's the chief sin of all unbelievers. But secondarily, there's the sin just of the fact that they can't do anything that's not curved in on themselves. But that's not the same as saying that those people will eternally reject the truth that their condemnation is just in 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 many ways. I think that almost makes the punishment worse, right? If if you're you're serving time for a crime and you not only are serving time for that for that crime you're being punished for something you actually did. When you acknowledge that that in a certain sense I feel like that makes it worse. It doesn't make you feel like, "Oh yeah, I can bear this punishment more because I know I deserve it." And and what's going on in the resurrection of the unjust is they're being presented with the evidence that they That they deserve the condemnation that's coming to them. And you know, I guess in a certain way, like they're gonna plead guilty. That's that's the craziest thing. They're going to acknowledge this is part of what I think, part of what I think Paul, who's quoting a passage in Isaiah, is saying when he says that every knee shall bow at the name of Jesus Christ. That's not just a that's not just a submissive worshiping Jesus bow. That's how we usually understand it, but that's every knee. So every knee will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, some to the glory uh, of their salvation, right? That's not what Paul is saying. Paul says to the glory of God the Father. But some of them, it's, it's an acknowledgment of Jesus Christ to their, unto their salvation, for others, it's acknowledgment of Jesus Christ unto their own judgment. But in, in both cases, it's an acknowledgment of who Christ is and what the rightful punishment is. So these these people who are being raised to, uh, to eternal punishment, to a dishonor, they're not going into this at this point—obviously, up until this point, they've been in full rebellion—they're not going into this punishment— feeling as though it's unjust feeling as though they don't deserve right. it and, and that's that to me is kind of a crazy thought because I've I've always been maybe maybe this is just my own individual background but I've always had the understanding and been taught that the 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 people who are in hell now and the people who will be in hell after the resurrection that they're never going to accept that they've earned what they're getting and in reality that's not what the Bible teaches the Bible teaches exactly. that 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 once Christ makes known to them, that their condemnation is just they accept that. And that's a that's a really really scary thought to me because I think we let sometimes we let um we let unbelievers off a little bit easy. We almost excuse their unbelief. And and it's interesting. I I hadn't thought to bring this passage up that you quoted, but Paul is pointing out that the unjust will be raised and, and that that right. will be a, res, a resurrection unto punishment, he's doing right. that as part of his eva- evangelistic message. Exa- exactly. And that, that is something that I think is probably missing in most of our message. We we go into evangelism and it's like, well, you know, you're going to suffer and, and we don't want that and Jesus wants to save you and wouldn't it just be better and easier if you just accepted Christ? When in reality what the law teaches us and what the gospel teaches is trying to save us from is the fact that no matter how hard we try to suppress the truth in unrighteousness now, we're going to stop suppressing it, even if it's still in unrighteousness in the in the last day. And we need to be able to account for that. We need to be able to understand that, or our evangelism is going to fall a little bit flat, I think.
0: Yeah, this is for sure like another example of how God's justice is not soft in any way it comes with the full magnitude that is appropriate given the kind of wickedness that must be basically judged. Yeah. And so the body of the ungodly must, at the last, arise out of the grave because that body and that soul, while they lived in the world, were co-partners in lust and wickedness. It must be so because God is meting out a full judgment. Again, it's, it's not soft in any way. So I'm, I'm totally with you because what I found remarkable is that Paul just comes in hot saying this. Yeah. He's not trying to like use these scare tactics as if like we well, really ought to accept Jesus because this is the way it's going to go for you and it's going to be pretty awful. But is this not what we'd expect of a loving, kind and judicial God? that it wouldn't just be about spirit, though we are spirit, but also about the body because we are also body. And that he's going to reunite these things for about those who love him and for those who don't. And those who don't will bear the full punishment, the full price in their bodies and their spirits for their cosmic treason. There's just no way around it. So when I think about Christ on the cross and him drinking to the dregs this full cup of wrath, it would take all of eternity for me to drink that cup. Yeah. Christ does it on the cross in a remarkable period of time because he is the son of God fully, full stop. He does that for his children on behalf of his children to redeem them, to justify them and then sanctify them. And for those that deny him, the opposite, that must be true, that it will take all of eternity to bear underneath that punishment. So it's, it's not just like, of course, like in our word, like you're serving time and somehow if you do good enough, you'll get... A, It's exactly as you said, when Paul writes to the Philippians that, listen, every knee will bow and every tongue confess on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. Impounded in that is not just a confession of like, all right, yeah, you're in charge. I see that now. It's that everything that God said about who we are apart from him is absolutely true. And it's that person saying, not just like I give up or uncle, you're right. It's saying you are right, God. And because you are right, I deserve wrath. Yeah. That is like a terrifying conception. However, that is what the Bible gives to us. That it's not there, there is no subjectivism, in other words, when we stand before God. It's not gonna be like, well, my opinion is this. We'll agree to disagree. Fine. I'll accept you as Lord. Yeah. To say that you are Lord is to say that you are right. Yeah. And so because of that, I deserve wrath. That is absolutely terrifying.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and we'll talk more about the end state of the righteous when we, you get into sort of final judgment and the, the final renewal of all things. Cause I think the resurrection of the just is much more related to what is going on with, um, like the new heaven and the new earth, then what's going on with the resurrection of the unjust? So we'll we'll talk about that when we get to that. But I think the other part that I want to at least bring into the conversation—we don't have a lot of time to, to talk about it—but I want to make sure it's stated. Sometimes, and I don't know for sure what the impulse to do this is. I feel it in my own theology. Sometimes we frame this, uh, even as I've talked about, um, as I've used the phrase "those who are apart from Christ." Right? There's there's a sense in which we want to soften. This, in that this is like the natural consequence of things. This is just what happens when you separate right. yourself from Jesus. And there is a sense in which that's true, right? There's a sense in which um, the, the, the most terrifying part of the resurrection of the unjust is a separation from God. But we have to be careful and intentional not to make that as though somehow Christ is not active in that. Right, it's not that the it's not that the reprobate sinner has separated themselves from from Christ exclusively. It's also that Christ is separating Himself from the reprobate sinner, and so we see that in this the Catechism answer in that after they've been judged with this um, this just con- just condemnation, um, they are cast out from the favorable presence of God and the glorious fellowship with Christ, His saints, and His holy angels. Right, so it's true that separation from God and separation from Christ is a natural consequence of sin. There's also a judicial sentencing and a, a, a judicial executing of the punishment that God is not simply letting happen. He's actively doing it. And that's, that's hard to say. Like that's not a comfortable thing to say, but our God is not more glorious if he is somehow absent from judgment, absent from punishment. Right. In fact, he is infinitely more glorious because he actively punishes sin. And and I think when we really think through that, even though it doesn't feel very good, when we really think through that, it, it actually fits a lot better than this idea that God is like just sort of letting things happen to bad people, or to, to, I shouldn't say bad people, to the wicked. That's the technical term, right? He's just letting punishment happen to wicked people. This is just the natural consequence of them walking away, right? It's the C.S. Lewis thing of God saying, well, fine, thy will be done. It, that's true to a, to an extent. It's true as far as it goes. Although when C.S. Lewis is doing he's explicitly trying to reject this idea of the actively punishing God. It's true as far as it goes, but God's judgment and God's justice go so much further than that. He is active in punishing and destroying those who are opposed to Him. He is an, a good king who not only protects us, but subdues and conquers our enemies. That's part of Christ's right. kingly. Office. So we can't, we can't, and it's very easy to, even just as how we talk, but we we ought not to soften what God is going to do in the final judgment of the wicked to the point where we make it not really actually a judgment. It's just like the consequences, like he's just letting what he's letting them get what they what they wanted for themselves. That's not true at all. Just like they aren't going to go into hell feeling like they've they've gotten the raw end of things, they're gonna go into it knowing they own this. They also are going to recognize that God has done this to them. God has done this to them as a result of their sin, not just, not just letting happen what happens, but actively punishing them. And that's, as I said, that feels like maybe it makes our God less glorious, but it actually, if we really think about it and we apply what the Bible says consistently, it actually makes him infinitely more glorious.
0: Right, because nobody wins but God. Nobody wins but God. So, like in the end, in this resurrection of both the just and the unjust, what we're saying is, God either conquers the heart by bringing about regeneration and transformation, or the stubborn heart is conquered in the end, in its terminus, by Him saying, "I win, and you will be punished." And so, either way, this is a matter of not like, well, are some people obedient or some people disobedient? It's a question of like how much do you understand your own disobedience. And either we come before the Lord and say, Have mercy on me, or we come before the Lord and we shake our fists at him. And in the end, he always wins because he is the conquering king. And the conquering king goes out and subjects his will because he is all power and nobody can stand before him. So you're right, there's always volition. And our own volition cannot stand before God himself, it will always be subjected to it, it'll always yield. And to your point, worse than just yielding and giving up is the person that will say, I'm subdued, I'm overwhelmed, I agree with your judgment. And therefore, there's no mercy anymore. There is, yes, subject your wrath. So we come to a place where either we find that everything has been burned out and covered by the blood of Christ, or we come to the final judgment and try to make our own way and find that we have no place to stand before him. And he inflicts his own wrath, which he ought to, because he is always and in every way the conquering king. God always wins. So I feel like that's as best a place as we can end it to for call all of our listeners, all our brothers, sisters that could do to think about and to process among yourselves and with your loved ones, and with your families, with non-Christians. Also, can I just say this? This kind of conversation, though it's hard, it's one of those like real truth. It's one of those like places where I feel like we pull up the stool and we say, like, Let's have a family conversation about what God says about the world, about who we are, about what he's done, about what it means for those who are outside the family of God, it should, in many ways, light a fire within us, inspire us, push us forward to continue to understand that evangelism, in its truest sense, this proclamation of the good news of the gospel is not a hobby, it's an emergency. We come forward and we ought to be examples and to speak and to preach and to talk into the lives of those who are in our sphere of influence because this is the reality And so it ought to move us forward in this way, not scare us or shock us into some kind of behavior, but out of a love to say that we want all, in so much as God has called them, to come into the family of Christ. And when all our job is, really, is to continue to exclaim exclaim that gospel to everyone who will listen, knowing that God does all the work, the Holy Spirit provides all the means, and that our role in that is by ordinary means, just say, this is the good news. And God does the rest. But if we are forsaking that responsibility, then we ought to come under the weight of the condemnation of what we're talking about right here that says, like, if we love people, if we love anybody, our neighbors, our coworkers, those who are not believers, then we ought to speak to them. So the bottom line is, there's so much for us to think about here. There's so much loveliness in God that we see even in his wrath and his judgment because he's sovereign. He seeks after and continues to affect justice And in the final end, in the terminus, he will do that thing because he wins. And his love is the thing that brings us to a place of both great joy forever and great wrath forever for those that oppose him. So that is the end. There's more to talk about, but this is a great place to start as we look to the end. So in that way, let's honor everyone. Love the Brotherhood. I see that Tony has left the meeting.